0: If you come with me to your notes uh, in the bulletin, we go to John chapter uh, 4. In fact, it's 1 John chapter 4, the first letter of John, chapter 4, verse 16. And today we'll read from the New King James Version. And he reads, As we have known and believed the love of God has for us, God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God. I'm God in him. You notice that it says, God is love, not love is God. By God being love, that means that God is the origin of love. However, in our days, in the way we communicate, in the form that we utilize words, we tend to move the meaning of love into all kinds of areas of our life. And by doing that, we diminish the actual meaning of the word. For example, if you like your shoes very much, you say, I love my shoes. When you buy a car and you drive it and you're happy about it and you're excited because it's your car, you say, I love my car. And the same thing applies for your girlfriend or your wife. I love my wife. The thing is this, God is love because that is his nature and that is his desire for me. That because he is love, he wants the best for me. That does not mean that that because God is love, I'm going to be able to do whatever I want. See, that is not love. In fact, parents who allow their children to do whatever they want, they don't love them. Okay, I'm going to stop right there on that one. Then, the question is, if God wants the best for each one of us, why is, it, why is it that as people who God wants to bestow all his love upon, why is it that we don't want to have a relationship with God? I'd like to share with you three ideas. And these three ideas are the fears that we as people have when we face the opportunity to commit to a God who loves us unconditionally. The first of these fears is the fear that I'll give up my fun. If I commit to God, if I accept a relationship with God, well, I'm going to give up my love, my, my, my fun. Some people believe that once you become a Christian... The fun is over. Some people equate being a Christian to being miserable. And I don't blame them. Sometimes you can look around where Christians are and you can see some faces that are miserable. Yeah, I don't blame them. But but one of the realities of a relationship with God is that God is willing to provide for us richly everything that we need to enjoy life to the max. Unfortunately, we try to improve what God has done, and that is our problem. See, we depart from the premise, from the basic principle that when God completed his, his creation, he said that it was good. But that also means that it was complete, that he wasn't lacking anything, that it was everything that it was intended to be, needing nothing else, lacking Nothing. But we try to enhance our experience, and that's when we fall into problems. Because, see, God wants us to enjoy life. When we talk about enjoying life, we think of experiences experiences that go beyond the norm. And that is one of the reasons why we invented extreme sports. Have you ever been parasailing? Para, para anybody here? Yeah, one. Had anybody uh, been skydiving from here? Okay, another. That's two, three. Okay. How long does, uh, does that experience last? Well, probably way too long before you jump, right? When you're on the plane and you get to the point and the, and the light goes on uh, uh, and you know it's about time to jump. But the jump, the, the, the acceleration of it, the adrenaline rush only lasts but a few seconds. But when, what happens after? See, God did not intend for us to enjoy life in bursts of seconds. God intended us to enjoy life permanently. And and that is oftentimes when we think that that if I have a commitment to, to God, I will lose my fun. But in reality, having fun the way God intended is having a clear conscience. Having fun the way God intended is having a happy and unified family. Having fun the way God intended is having Christian friends who don't manipulate you. Having fun in, in, in Christ means to laugh in church. Are you with me? Having fun in Christ means to enjoy the world that God made. Isn't our church looking beautiful today? You know, the lights are on. We know it's a season of joy and there's snow falling out there in other states. You know, God intended us to enjoy the world the way he made it to be, whatever you happen to live. We don't have to go to another place to enjoy life. So one of the fears that people experience is that they might give up their fun if they commit to Christ. Another fear that people experience is that they might become fanatics. Misguided religious people tend to cause many to steer away from God. Probably you know someone who is rigid, narrow-minded, legalistic. Don't, Don't turn. Don't turn. You know, they have a rule for everything. And they have the do's and don'ts. They seem to be in another level next to everyone else. And they happen to find all the deficiencies of other people, but never their own. They're obnoxious, overzealous crusaders, and they're trying to scare the hell out of you. Is that okay to say in church? Hell is in the Bible. And then you have the other ones that are overzealous, sentimental, that they cry for everything. You know, it's amazing. It's amazing. When, when, when I was there at the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, you see people literally crying, crying for a place that no longer serves what it was intended to serve. And they're expecting that one day that place becomes what, what it was once. Because what? It's never going to be that place again. But people still cry about it. And passionately. And you have those people that for everything that happens, they even attribute it to the devil or to God. We are just a very, 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 very short distance away from becoming fanatics in the way we experience God. And that only happens, first, when we have an experience of faith that is based on knowledge only, if our experience of faith is based on knowledge only, we're going to try to find everything else that is wrong to condemn. And when your life becomes finding the wrong, you will never do what is right. Another situation that happens is that people are not really into the word, but they're into the feeling good. And that's another extreme of fanaticism. Or fanatism. I'm inventing words this morning. And when we, when we fall in the other extreme of fanatism, is because we don't really care about the knowledge. We care only about the experience, the feeling good, the song that makes me cry, cry the words that make, me, that make me remember. And that is okay unless that's the only thing you search for. I know people who all they want is worship because it feels good. And I know people who all they want is to t- study prophecy because it feeds their knowledge. Now, let me tell you something. M- one of my favorite books in the Bible is the book of Revelation. In fact, I'm excited because the next long series that we'll have next year in the spring, it's going to be on the seven churches. A- and I'm telling you because I'm excited about it. But you could study all the prophecy in the world and not have Jesus. And if you understand all the prophecies in the world but you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. In fact the first verse of Revelation, Revelation 1-1 says this is the what? The revelation of who? So if you don't have Jesus in the middle of your understanding of prophecies, you don't have anything. All you have is history. So see Christ has got to be the center of your knowledge and your experience because Christ is the one that put the Word into life. He says in, Gen- in John 1:1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God, and then the Word became what? Flesh. Because Jesus is where everything, the knowledge and the experience become one. So you can have the knowledge, you can have the experience, but if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. But when you have an experience, a personal experience with Jesus, the fear, Of becoming a fanatic goes away because you know you're centered on the right place. The third fear that people experience is the loss of freedom. The world defines freedom as the ability to do whatever you please. Without restraints. Do what I want, say what I want, respond to nobody. But I have a question for you. How far does sexual freedom has taken us? Social diseases, abortion, AIDS? I have another question for you. How far chemical freedom has taken us? We live in a country addicted to legal and illegal drugs. Just look at your cabinet. I have another question for you. How about credit freedom? How far has credit freedom taken us? Just 146 easy payments and a trillion national debt. We are not as free, we are not as free as we think we are. The consequences of our choices has caused us more pain than the joy of having the freedom. But the fact is that Jesus came to set us free. Jesus offers real freedom. Freedom from worry, guilt, and resentment. And of course, freedom from the fear of death. So, when we talk about these fears, we can only understand one thing. That these three fears that people experience when faced with the decision to commit to Christ can only go away when you experience Jesus. So, Ephesians 3.17 says, That Christ may dwell in your heart through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. Maybe he's talking to us all together here. What is the width, the length, the depth. And the height of God's love. So, everything has limits. Do you agree with me? You drive, and there's few limits. Everything has limits, but God's love is limitless. So, how is it that God's love? It's limitless. Like the song that Wayne sang this morning, the first thing that we can understand about God's limitless is that it's wide enough to include. Oh. It's wide enough to include everyone. Everyone. John 3.16. You remember this verse, right? We see it in stadiums. We see it everywhere. For God so loved the world that he gave For what? He's only begotten his own so that whoever believes. Whoever, who is whoever. It's everywhere. Everyone. This is a universal, all inclusive text. See, he doesn't talk about uh, differences, he doesn't talk about styles, he doesn't, doesn't talk about ages or, or nationalities, he doesn't talk about any distinction of people, he's talking about Everyone, everyone. The good news is that that text includes me because God loves me. The bad news is that God loves my enemies just as well. So that means that I need to love my enemies just as much as God loves them. And, and we see in the story of the Gospels that Jesus loved the, the not so lovely ones and caused them problems. Because he spent time with the people that were outside of the society that was accepted. Especially in their behaviors. It it, it just amazes me that the first miracle that Jesus performed was at a wedding. And and you do uh, remember that weddings in those days, in the time of Jesus, were a little bit different than the weddings that we celebrate today. You see, weddings in those days, we're, we're uh, not a one-day event, not a few hours event. Today when you, when you prepare a wedding, when you're about to get married, you, you, you book a venue to have the ceremony. And now it's very common. I've been doing recently a lot of weddings where the, the ceremony takes place right next to the venue or at the same place where the reception is going to take place. And uh, I guess it's more economical, I don't know. But... What happens is that people are expected to be at that place from certain time to a certain time. And it's over. But in the time of Jesus was very different because in reality, once the ceremony took place, there was no time for the the reception to end. The reception ended when the food and the wine ran out. And there was a reason for that. Because the one who provided for the the refreshments for the reception was the family of the groom or the groom himself. And the fact that people would leave the place because they had a job and they had lives before the refreshments ended was a sign that this groom was wealthy enough. Financially stable enough and, 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 and organized enough to provide for his bride for a long time. But when people were there, not gone yet, and the refreshments ended, that was a bad sign. So you remember the story Jesus and the disciples were invited to this wedding, and, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there. And they come to Mary and they tell them, Mary, we have a problem. The wine ran out. I don't want to get a a lot into theology, but I just want to tell you something. That Mary did not perform the miracle there. And there's one reason why. Because she couldn't. So she says, let me talk to the one who can. And she talked to Jesus. Said, Jesus, they ran out of wine. Now let me stop for a second here. Wine in the Bible, especially in the New Testament, there is no distinction in the words between the wine that we know as having alcohol and grape juice. It's just one word for both of them. And the word is oinos. Can you say that? Oinos. So Mary comes to Jesus and says the oinos is out. So Jesus tells the people to fill jars with water. And Mary says, do everything he tells you to do. So they do it. And and we know the story at the end. The wine that Jesus made was way better than the one that they had before. Now, funny thing about this is that the, the man who was in charge of administering the situation with the wine said that, well, usually people bring the best wine out first and then the not so good later. But you brought the best wine later, last night before. In Acts chapter two, the disciples receive the Holy Spirit, and they begin to speak in tongues. You remember that? And the tongues of the people who were there visiting Jerusalem from many places. Peter stood up to speak in defense of the disciples because the Jews that went around, who, who were not understanding those other languages, they say, "Oh, these men are drunk." And Peter gets up and says, no, they're not drunk. It's only 9 in the morning. Now, if you think with your Western mind, you're thinking, okay, okay. So it's okay after 9 in the morning? What's the deal here? He said, no. See, what happens is this. That and let me take you to another text a little farther away. When when, when Paul tells Timothy that, that the elders should not be people who drink what? No. It doesn't say don't drink wine it says don't drink too much wine. Okay, now you're looking at me weird. Let me explain this to you. Peter says they're not drunk. It's only nine in the morning. And the reason was because every time that we think of wine, we think in modern processes of fermentation. When people make wine, what they do today is that they press the grapes and they store them away in barrels. They're not refrigerated. They just store it away. And the reason why they are stored away in barrels is to produce uh, uh, fermentation. And fermentation is when, when, when the sugar in juice becomes crystallized and then turns into alcohol. But in those days, in the time of Jesus, people who pressed the, wine, the, the, the grapes, they drank it. But when you drink too much grape juice all day long, because back in those days there was no water, the way we, we have, like right now you have water bottles, right? And you have the ones that you fill out in your house, and you have the little ones that you throw away. But in those days, especially in that area of the world, there was not a lot of water, so they had wine. That's what they drank. But if you drink grape juice through the whole day in the heat of your system, as is digesting, and you have grape juice in your stomach all the time, by the end of the day, guess what happens? Ferments in your stomach. So at 9 in the morning, you're not drunk. It's going to be at 9 at night. So that is why Paul says, if you're going to be a leader in the church, if you're going to be a, an elder, you should not drink too much wine. So there's no time for the wine to ferment. He didn't like that I said that. Are you with me? Now, why was I saying this? (laughs) Jesus makes a miracle with something that was going to create With something that was going to be a representation of future blessings. In that miracle in Cana, Jesus shows that even some of those people were not going to refrain to drink one cup or to drink for one day. They might be drinking all day up to seven days. Jesus is still made make the miracle. You know why? Because Jesus loved is for everyone, even those who don't do what is right. The second evidence of the magnitude of God's love for us is that it's long enough to last forever. Jeremiah 31.3 says, The Lord has appeared of all to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with a what? Everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. Our human love runs out. Because our human love is based on actions and reciprocation. We do because I love. But if you don't do back, I'm not going to love you anymore. That's why we have all kinds of relationships broken. Because our human love runs out. God's love never wears out. It's persistent. It's consistent. And it's patient. God never gives up on you. Isn't that good news? However, God will never never love me more than he loves me now. And he would never love me less than he loves me now. See, religion, by definition, if you go to a dictionary, religion is the effort of man to be appreciated by God. In all the religions in history, in all the religions around the world, the procedure is the same. Man has to perform an act, a sacrifice, a... a, 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 a uh, Um, journey, a, 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 a task, a list, to be able to be accepted by their God. The only religion that does not require that is Christianity. Because Jesus loved us even before we were created. Are you breathing? So see, there is nothing that can limit the love of God for me because His Long enough to last forever. So you see, it's not a matter of list of what I should do, what I can do, what I cannot do. It's a matter of Jesus loving me the way he's always loved me and the way he will always love me. So what I have to do is just accept it. Our problem is that because I don't love like that, I don't think that God can love me like that. And that's why it is so difficult for me to accept that kind of love. But all I have to do is understand that God's love is undeserved and is unearned. I just have to accept it. There is nothing I can do to earn it. And there's nothing I have done to deserve it. God's love is also high enough to be everywhere. To be everywhere. Have you ever seen video from a drone? You've seen those little helicopter-looking things that fly out and they have cameras and they take pictures of video from above? It it is just amazing. And, uh, if you go on a plane, if you fly on a helicopter, or if you go on one of those, one of those, uh, uh, how do they call those? Balloons that would high air, hot air balloons. You know, you go, and, and the higher you go, the more area that you can see. Have you experienced that? To me, I, I love to fly. I love to be on airplanes, and I love to see if I can identify where I'm flying over. I love to, I, I try to guess. It's very difficult. It's very difficult, let me tell you. It's very difficult. But oftentimes there's little landmarks that you can see, oh, that's that place. Oh, that's that other place. I keep looking at the little map with the airplane and the, uh, that shows that this, I, I love that. I love that. And, and you can, and you have already realized that the higher you are, the more area that you can see. See, God's love is so high it's so high, then can be everywhere. Not because he's with us today, he can love the other people around on the other side of the world. God sees everything, and He is everywhere, as we learn in, uh, in the second week of this series. And He can experience the same type of relationship. With people in America as he does with people in Asia and in people in Europe and in people in South America and in people in the Caribbean. Because God is not constrained to geography. Romans 8.39 says, Nor high nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is no place that I can go where God isn't. No situation, no situation will be ab- able to separate us from the love of God. The only antidote to loneliness is understanding that God is with me. God's love is also deep enough to meet my need. Psalm 135, 6 says, whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deep places. I got a chance to float on the Dead Sea a couple of weeks ago. And let me tell you something. Uh, For seven summers, while I was a, a, a young lad, I worked as a lifeguard. And I was a water safety instructor. So I was certified to teach people how to swim and how to be water safe. And, and I was a, a, a pool manager, so I had to train young lifeguards into the trade of lifeguarding. But that was one of my problems when I had to show, when I had to demonstrate how to float on the back. You see, there is a test in in, in water uh, disciplines that is the buoyancy test. And the way it is, the way that test happens is that you jump into a pool with your hands by your side. You go straight down. You take a deep breath and you jump in the water and you stay there. We tell the little kids, float like a pencil. And what happens is that if you have positive buoyancy, your chin, your head, even some people up to the top of their shoulders comes out of the water. But when you have negative buoyancy, your forehead is underwater. This has nothing to do with gender or race or age. It just happens to be the composition of your body. I suffer of negative buoyancy. So teaching people how to float was a very difficult task for me. But two weeks ago, I got to float effortless. They told us, don't go face forward. If you go face forward, it's very difficult to turn around, and that's the only way you can drown in the Dead Sea. So what you do is that you walk, take a couple of steps, turn around where the water is up to your knees, and just sit on the water. And voila. Voila. I was floating, I was floating. I have to tell you that I was happy because I was floating effortlessly for the first time in my life. And it didn't matter how deep the water was because as long as my body was touching the surface of the Dead Sea, I was floating. And that's when this text came to my head. Again. It doesn't matter what situation you're going through in your life. It doesn't matter what's happening with you, what you're thinking, where you are, how old you are. God's love is there. Because it's deep enough to hold you up. Romans 5 says, but God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, any sinners here today? Christ died for us. There is no place that you can go that God isn't. Well, that was the way I was away I sent a video for you to, to see. But for some technical difficulties, apparently the video was never shown. So we've edited that video. And I want to show you something. That it was very meaningful to me. And uh, let's show the video. I don't know if you see it, but that is the Sea of Galilee. And when you read the Gospels, you see many times that, that Jesus went from one side to the lake to the other. We happen to be on a boat on that lake. In fact, that video was taken from, from the boat. And everywhere you look, there is a peace. There is a, 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 some level of comfort that I cannot explain to you. But I can tell you this, that as we were sailing on that little boat and going around the lake and through the lake, it's only 30, well, it was 30 miles, but 30 kilometers, but 11 kilometers, but it's been shrinking. My mind could not stop by to think. There was a moment while I was going on that boat where in Jesus' travels from one side to the other of the lake our paths but that wasn't the most amazing thing about it the most amazing thing was that one day on that same lake peter was fishing with some of the disciples and it was a long night because jesus was not with them anymore in fact jesus had been dead and they tried to fish through the whole night and they could not catch anything As the sun was rising, somebody from the shore yells, guys, throw the nets on the other side. Now remember, these guys on the boat are professional fishermen. They knew what they were doing. They had been doing it for years. And after not catching anything on their own way, they figure out, well, might as well try. Now, think about the logic of this. One side of the boat, the other side of the boat. It's not go 100 meters that way. Just the other side of the boat. But they listen to the voice and they flip their nets and they dip them on the other side of the boat. The Bible tells us, family, that when they try to lift the nets, they couldn't lift them up anymore because the nets were about to rip from the fish that were caught. When they come to the shore, there is this man... With breakfast ready, fish tacos. Once they eat, Jesus begins to walk on the shore with Peter. And Jesus asked three questions to Peter Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me, Peter? Do you love me? Notice that the question was wasn't, Peter. Do you think? I love you? Peter knew that Jesus loved them. The problem was not the love of Jesus. The problem was the love that Peter had for Jesus. And if you're breathing this morning, that is still the question. Do you love me? Jesus is asking to each one of us. Do you love me? You've probably been trying all night to fix your problem. You've probably been trying to fix your life, your marriage, your your professional situation. Probably you've been trying for so long to change. But guess what? All you have to do is listen to the voice of the master, cast the net to the other side of the boat. Because he is waiting for you with a love that has no limits. With a love that's high, that's long, that's deep. And he's waiting for you to understand that there's nothing that you can do for him to love you more. And there's nothing so bad that you've done in your life for him to love you less. For eight weeks we've been talking about letting God be part of our lives but nothing matters nothing at all matters if we don't let god love us so this morning family i want to ask you are you willing are you wishing to let god love you probably you look back at the times when you said yes i want i want a relationship with god but i failed I messed up, I made mistakes. And that is stopping you from recommitting, from committing. With family. If there's anything that we've learned in this series, is that regardless of our past, God is preparing a future that is beyond our loftiest dreams. And that is because God loves you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. And in spite of us, your love has no limits. We can thank you, Lord, today because of all the times when we failed, You're still there, waiting for us. Of all the times that we denied you, you're still waiting for us to put your arm around and to assure us that your love has never changed. Father, we pray that when we leave this place, we can go with the assurance that we have a God That does not expect anything for us, from us. That does not expect us to fulfill any lists. The only thing that we have to do is to respond to this love that has no limits. And Father, as we close this prayer, I want to give some moments for each one of us. To respond to the call of love. For those of us who in the past accepted a relationship with you, Lord, but over time it's changed a bit, not for the better. And for those of us who've heard about you, who heard about the Bible, who, who learned a little bit about Jesus but never really gave him a chance, for our relationship that today may we take the first step not just to know about him but to experience him in our lives and lord may we leave with a certainty that our god has no limits, and is there for everyone. In Jesus' name we pray.